All right, please take your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We are uh, in Revelation chapter 21. And oh, by the way, just let you know, uh, this Wednesday, some people were like, they said, three different people came up to me and said, how come Joe hasn't done the Marvel thing here and he went to Texas and did it over there? Well, the idea was that we were going to do a, our first Marvel video, was ho- we were hoping it would be done uh, in time for our Texas trip. And that was going to be a way of uh, getting, you know, because when you go someplace, you do something, you try to win the loss, you try to strengthen the believers, and we're going to try to have that done. And we didn't get the first, we have the, uh, several parts now, seven almost done. And uh, the first one is very close to done, but guess what I did get done? Uh, I got the overview done. So it was like a two-hour presentation I did for them in Texas or so. I don't know how long exactly, but it was some of the best stuff out of each part which I felt would be most compelling to tell the story, Marvel in D.C., and just how a lot of these writers, unfortunately, I'm sorry, a lot of these guys are not good guys. In fact, a lot of these guys are occultists, Satanists, and I quote them where they have designs on the children of deception, where they're targeting kids, you know, and a lot of them probably laughing about it. So uh, I was able to get that done enough to do a presentation up there, and we got it done just in time because the first one wasn't done. So we're doing, when the first video comes out, uh, which Josh is getting really quick to finishing that. Uh, he's doing the editing on that. And I've got to uh, do a few fixes, which is probably just take me 10 minutes or so. So I'm just waiting on them to say, hey, okay, I'm ready. we're ready for the fixes. I'll be doing that. Uh, that'll be coming out, who knows, hopefully real quick. But one thing we do have uh, is the presentation I did in Texas, which we're doing this Wednesday night at Blessed Hope Chapel. Okay? So be here, man. You'll be blown away. I think it's every bit as eye-opening is our video, They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll. And the Lord used that to save thousands and thousands and thousands of people, okay? And we're hoping the same will happen. When we showed it in Texas, we had a pretty stunned group, as my brothers and sisters in Texas know. It's very eye-opening, and it's going to be a very good evangelistic tool, because it shows you how real the enemy is, and he's at work in many sectors, but a lot of Christians let their guard down with these kind of movies. In fact, they, a lot of Christians think these are the acceptable movies versus pretty much everything else out there, and they don't realize this is one of the biggest deceptions going right now. Because uh, Marvel movies are the number one franchise of, of any kind of movie franchise right now. And in the top four, you have Marvel, you have Batman, you have Spider-Man and X-Men. And Spider-Man and X-Men are Marvel movies, but they have their own because of Sony and Amazon, their own movie. Uh, they're not tied to Marvel with regard to the movies except for Marvel. And then Batman's DC, four of the top 10 movie franchises in the world are based on superheroes, not a coincidence, because everybody's looking for a superhero, and the Antichrist is going to step in the gap, and a lot of these things are, are conditioning people for that, and you'll see that Wednesday night. So Wednesday night, we're only charging nothing. It's free, okay? And it's going to, it'll hit you really hard, so I encourage you to be there, uh, and we usually start at, you know, uh, 7.15, but what we're going to do Thursday is Tony's going to start worship at 7. Tony, did you hear that? It's new news to him. So let Tony know he starts at 7 instead of 7.15. Uh, and then we'll go on at 7.15, okay? So try to be here at 7, amen? And then we'll do that presentation uh, for you. In fact, I think everybody's hearing, about, even Josh is probably hearing about this for the first time. I don't know if I texted him that on, on that yet, but it's easy to do. We've already done it, so uh, we'll be able to do it and pull it off by the grace of God. So anyway, uh, and for those of you, I hate to say it, for those of you who are in a live stream audience that can't make it because you're too far away, well, the guys in Texas and gals, you already saw it, you know, 
But for the rest, we can't show it because it's a bunch of video clips and we'll get nixed right away. As soon as we air something, you, uh, uh, Facebook, you know, YouTube, we'll shut it down as soon as we show even a minute. Even though we are under the fair use clause because we're doing something that's newsworthy that we're exposing, it's legal, you're guilty until you're proven innocent. So we do these videos, they knock them down, then sometimes weeks or months later, they finally put it back up. It's kind of a bummer. And it's not like you just call, hey, I want to talk to Facebook. Hey, I just want to talk to YouTube. They just don't answer the phones, guys. It's a conglomerate of businesses and so forth, business conglomerate. Anyway, Revelation chapter 21. We are looking at verses 5 and 6 today. I've done a lot of work on verses 7 and 8, but uh, I can't fit all that in, and that's basically a separate kind of theme. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6 to catch the gist of what's going on here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now that, uh, I'm going to start to want to kind of dive into the meaning of these verses, but we've already covered them, so I'm going to resist the temptation. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. It's going to be amazing. Amen? Verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank the Lord. Amen? One day for believers, every tear will be wiped away. And there will no longer be any death. No more funerals, guys. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And it's exciting because I wanted to read those first verses coming up so we get the context of verse 5. He's going to make everything new, amen? And we love new things. I mean, we love it when the Lord makes something new. We, on New Year's Day, we love the fact that we get a new year. Uh, those last couple years have been really, really harsh in our country and even globally. Uh, we make New Year's resolutions and so forth. But the Lord's literally going to make everything new. There's going to be a cosmic meltdown. All the elements will be melted with fervent heat of the entire cosmos. And... Uh, but at Christ's second coming, he'll establish his thousand-year reign, amen? And after he rules in the millennial reign, uh, Satan will be let loose for a short time because we'll be bound during that time, and he'll gather up those who've been, now we'll be with Christ ruling in our new, in our new bodies, amen? We'll have our resurrected bodies for a thousand years, and then Satan's let loose for a short time, and he deceives those who have, uh, those who, you know, are able to be deceived to come against Christ who's ruling in Jerusalem, then the God, the God the Father rains fire upon them, destroys them. Then there's a great white throne judgment, right? And that's when in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and that the dead give up, you know, the sea gives up its dead, Hades gives up its dead, and everybody who has not come to Jesus and rejected him, who's in Hades, goes before the great white throne, and if their names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're thrown then into the lake of fire. And then he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what we're reading about here. Amen? And he's going to make all things new. And we could get into all the things he's going to make new, but guess what chapter 21 and 22 are all about? All the things that he makes new. So instead of doing a whole message on him making all things new, well, he's going to delineate the things that he's going to make new and how special they are. So we won't uh, just, we'll just focus on the reality that this is kind of like wetting our taste buds for what's coming up. And then he says, right, for these words are faithful and true. 
These words are faithful and true. I love it because Jesus in the book of Revelation is called the one who is faithful and true. Amen? And the reason his words are faithful and true is because he's what? Faithful and true. Okay? When you look at Jesus, when you see him in, in your resurrected state, he has hands that are pierced. Amen? Feet that are pierced. A face that I believe perhaps because his hands and feet still bear the scars, that'll bear the scars still of the crucifixion. His face is more marred than any man's. And that just blows me away when I think about that. And there's not going to be any tears because when I see that man, I'll make me want to cry and rejoice at the same time because of his great love for us, amen? But he makes all things new and because he's faithful and true, he's faithful to keep his word. I was going to do a whole thing on just faithful and true. And then I was going to go into Daniel because I wanted to show you how faithful and true he was to fulfilling all these prophecies already that have already come to pass. And you know that from Isaiah 53, Psalm chapter 22, and other passages as well, amen? But I thought, you know what? Prayerfully, we'll be going through the book of Daniel on the midweek study before too long. So pray about that. Uh, by the way, <laughs> we've had so many things with COVID and everything, all these uh, devotional and topical messages that I want to get back and we're near the end of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I want to bring that back, but I'll do that on, on Wednesdays and finish that book up and then hopefully get into the book of Daniel. I'm praying about it, uh, trying to find the Lord's leading on that. But he's, his words are faithful and true. Amen? I mean, you have a book which is 66 books long, the Bible. 70 if you divide up the book of Psalms like the Jews had into five books, okay? And it's written over a 1,500-year span of time, about almost 2,000-year span of time by over 40 authors, amen? And by three in three different languages, right? Hebrew, Greek, and there's some Aramaic, right? And there's actually other languages that influence certain words, so you can just go on and on with that. Yet it's one message from Genesis to Revelation. Hallelujah. That, that's mind-boggling. To just put that together. If you just sat next to the person to your left and your right and you said, hey, let's write a book and say it's from God. And you live at the same time. You speak the same language. And one of you goes to Miami. One of you stays in California. One of you goes to New York. And let's put our books together. And then let's sell it and say it's from God. It would just be full of holes. Amen. And everybody would laugh at it and say, that's not from God. Only God could do this almost 2,000 years apart with over 40 authors, amen? That is powerful. And it's just one, and by the way, it's not like any other book because it carries the warts. Even the writers, you see their falls and so forth, right? And, and you see, you know, it, it's just mind-boggling. And I'm going to just go off on that verse for the rest of the message, but I need to move to the, next, the very next verse. Verse six, then he said to me, it is done. Then he said to me, it is done. Wow. I am what? The Alpha and the Omega. What's the Alpha and what's the Omega? The beginning and the end. Or it's the first and last letter of what alphabet? The Greek alphabet. Say Alpha and Omega. See, you know some Greek, you know? So it's the Alpha and the Omega. the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And he says the beginning and the end. Now, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we're going to look at the last part of that verse, too. But I want to camp out there for a little bit. I was going to camp out there for the entire service. Uh, but I decided, you know, I want to cover verse, the rest of verse 6 as well. Because it's important for us to know who Jesus is. Because there is 
terms used of Jesus throughout the New Testament that are only used of God, and they're used exclusively of God in the Old Testament. You know that. I did a message a few Wednesday nights ago where I looked at all these different things that says about Yahweh, that every knee and every tongue, will, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to Yahweh, you know, that he's Yahweh. But in the New Testament, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Kurios. He is Lord, okay? Amen. Now, uh, and I went through so many parallels like that. But one of my favorites to use when I'm sharing with Jehovah Witnesses uh, is how Jesus is the first and last, how he's the Alpha and the Omega, how he's the beginning and the ending. And those are titles only used of God, can only be used of God. I mean, what does it mean to be the first and last? It means that before we existed, he was already there. It means that no one came before him, that he is self-sufficient, amen? He is self-existing. In him alone, as the scriptures say, he alone possesses immortality. The only way you can have life, everlasting life, and become immortal in the sense of not dying is in connection, to, in relationship with him, amen? That's heavy, man. So he existed before all things, amen? And all things came to being by him. And he exists at the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's still the Supreme, amen? He's still alone God. He is still the one that we must depend on for life. He is the first and he is the last. Now, I'm going to show you how this verse and many other verses tie into Jesus. And, you know, I love, and by the way, I love to share with Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to my door, you know. Uh, and I used to stop and pull over when I was a young Christian, you know, and try to witness to him when I saw him walking, you know, whether it was JWs or Mormons. And I uh, had the pleasure not too long ago, well, a little while back, but of a, a, a guy named Kevin, a nice guy, brings his friend over and she's Jehovah's Witness and she sits through the service and we spent, I don't know, about an hour in my office there and Jehovah's Witness, you know, that whole background, that belief system. It, but uh, we went through the scriptures on Jesus being the first and last. And by the end of our time together, she began to confess Christ as her Lord, you know, and turn to Jesus Christ and understands that he indeed is God. Uh, the scriptures are sharp. They're powerful. So if you take some notes here, you know, always try to bring a pen, bring a paper, something to scratch on, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of times I give a message like this and then somebody's like texting me, hey, what were those scriptures you shared? I got your voice. I can't believe it. I'm like, yeah, I can't believe it. You should have took notes. You know, you'd be ready. You know, I'm, I'm happy to help. I always help people, you know, but I'm juggling a thousand things. And so when you, if you, if you're here and you're taking notes and you're growing, you don't have a thousand questions later because you're growing. Amen. So try to do the best you can to, to, so I'm going to show you that Jesus is definitely, first of all, I want to talk about how the, the one who identifies him as self as the first and the last is God, you know? Go to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41 in the Old Testament. Now, when you get there, it's important. The context here, he's talking about Yahweh, is talking about being the ruler and the judge of all the earth. And in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, we read that who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth generations from the beginning. I am the Lord. I am the first with the last. I am he. Now he's definitely the first. Amen. And 
The monotheism in Isaiah is super, super strong, emphasizing that he exclusively is God. And anybody that has any existence has it apart from him and after him. And he is the only one and only true God. And he reaches in these contexts of these chapters I'm showing you that he is the one who, only one who could, who could establish the nation of Israel, the ancient nation, and tell its future and, and supersede any threat from the false gods and the nations against his, his nation and continue to allow them to exist because he is indeed the first and the last. Now go to chapter 44. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, and by the way, Lord there is what? All what? All caps, amen? All caps signifies that it's translating what? The what? Tetragrammaton, okay? You're right. Tetragrammaton is a sacred name of God. The consonants are what we have, Y-H-W-H in the English transliteration without the vowels because the, the Jews took out the vowels and they don't know what the vowels were. So we have Y-H-W-H. Jehovah Witnesses can't be right with Jehovah, though, because there's no J in the Hebrew like that, okay? There's a Y, okay? Uh, and I'm not saying you can't use the name Jehovah. It's in the King James a couple times. But his, we, call, we say Yahweh because we translate all the letters there. And we don't know if it's Yahweh or Yehwah or there's a vowel before the, the Y sound and Ayewah. We don't know exactly, you know? But what we do know is the name above every name and the name he must call upon to be saved, which is Jesus in Greek, Jesus, amen? And when I pray, I don't have to know exactly how to say, because God has more than one name, I, I like to be able to say our Father, amen? To me, that's super intimate, and I love that, our Father who art in heaven. So notice what it says, though, thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Hmm, what does... The Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, say. By the way, who's the Redeemer? God says himself in Isaiah that I made all things. He says he's the maker of all things. He said, I made everything by myself. So keep that in mind. Whoever Yahweh is, and that's Yahweh's right here, he makes everything by himself. Amen? And also, he says, I know no other Savior. He's the only Savior. So right here, we find out that Yahweh, Lord, is also the Redeemer. What's the Redeemer? What's the Old Testament background for the Redeemer? Remember the kinsman Redeemer? Had to be a relative who would what? Because it was a blood relative, he would what? Be able to redeem what you had lost. Amen? Well, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? He became our kinsman Redeemer. And what does the Lord God say? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies? He can back up what he says, but he's also the Redeemer. He says, I am the what? I am the first, and I am the what? Last, and there is what? No God besides me. Now keep in mind, the God of the Old Testament is saying he is the, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there's what? There's no God besides me, okay? Which is fascinating. And some believe the impact of the Hebrew there refers to the, even the, the false gods. They only have their existence by his power. He allows them to exist but there's, no, there's only one true God, and he's the first and the last. So if somebody came in here today, and they said, hey, can I have three minutes? I've got to share something really important. And I foolishly gave up the pulpit for a stranger, and the stranger started saying, I just want to let you guys know, I'm the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. What would that person be saying? 
there be saying they are God. Obviously, because God uses this as an exclusive term to define the fact and, and emphasize the fact that there's only one God and he's the first, it's a self-existing God. Before anything else existed, he had already existed. The Bible says that God is from everlasting to everlasting, amen? Just like eternity future is forever and ever, eternity past is forever and ever past. How could that be? How could he just always exist? You want to know something even harder to conceive of? How could he come out of nothingness? That's even harder to... Both are really hard to get your brain around. I think about them a lot. I'm past those, thinking, those ways of thinking, but I still think about it, but I'm like... I don't, but I say like, man, you've always existed. That blows me... Because we're so be used to beginnings and endings in this world, right? So it's hard to conceive that he's from everlasting and everlasting. But something that's even harder to conceive... Is how from absolute nothingness he could just come to exist. That's ridiculous, right? And by the way, when the atheist says, how could God always exist? He'd be too complex. And you know, some people try to give a simple view of God because they want to make him less complex in some ways, you know? And I don't go there because I only want to say what God's word says, you know? And I, I think he's far more radical and complex than us, right? His mind is anyway, right? So what I say is, wait a minute, all you atheists pretty much believe that the universe existed eternally. You'd have a problem with that. What do you mean? Yeah. Remember Einstein's biggest blunder? What was it? The static state theory, because a lot of the physicists and the biologists and stuff, they just wanted to believe that the universe always existed in a steady state. So there was no creator. You didn't need a creator, right? And they called it the steady state theory. So if you said, hey, there's a creator, no, the universe has always been here. It's just always existed in different forms. You know, it's just evolved. But the, the, the matter that's in the universe has always been here, really. Then the Hubble's telescope was developed, right? Then Einstein looked through the Hubble telescope, and he called it his biggest blunder. He realized there's a beginning. There's a creator. By the way, God's always way ahead of these guys, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said that year, thousands of years ago, right? And then he called it his biggest blunder. So, and then all these scientists, these physicists had to shift over. There's a creator, right? Wow, there is a creation. There's a creator. And many of the physicists became creationists at that point. Now, it's interesting, not all of them, but many of them. In fact, physics, which is considered the ultimate of the sciences, has always had uh, more believers in a creator than the biologists and so forth. And they're, they're considered the brains of the brains, right? And Einstein himself affirmed over and over again that there was a creator, he wasn't a Christian. He was pantheistic. He didn't know what to actually understand it. We talked about God doesn't roll dice and, and so forth. But it's interesting. Uh, so when somebody says, well, how could God always exist? Say, well, you guys believe the universe always exists until you're proven wrong, you know? So why couldn't God always exist? The old, the old, there's only two alternatives. Either I has always existed or he came out of nothing, which is ridiculous. So yes, he is from everlasting to everlasting. I don't doubt that. Now, it's interesting because in Isaiah 44, 24 now, let's go ahead and read that. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. There it is again. The one who formed you from the womb, I the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh twice now in verse 24. The maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself. By what? He made everything by himself. Catch that. That's great to share with the Jehovah's Witness. Because in the beginning, the God created the heavens and the earth, and God is their Elohim. Amen. And God said, let us make man in what? Our image. Who's he talking to? I believe he's talking to Jesus there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And nothing came to being but by him. All things were made through him. Amen? He's speaking to the Word. 
Amen. But, and also the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was hovering over the earth. And God said, you know, let there be light. And there was light. And in uh, the book of Job, it talks about how God sends forth his spirit and they are created. So you have, the whole, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved in creation. Amen. But you have here God claiming to be the first and last. Look at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am what? I am the first, Isaiah 48, 12. I am the first, and I am also what? The last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forever. What's my point here? Why am I bringing you so many verses in Isaiah? Because it's showing whoever the first and last is, he's claiming to be the only true God. And it's showing that he is the only one that created everything. Are you with me? Because the one who identifies himself as the first and last in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, says a few verses later in verse 24 that he made everything by himself, whoever the first and last is. Amen? That's God, Yahweh. And then in chapter 48, verse 24, he says, I'm the first and last again. And he says, his, surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. So the first and last is the one true God and he's what? The creator of all things. Amen? Now, it's important. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, we read, but, the, but of the Son, he says, of the Son, of Jesus, he, the Father says, your throne, O God, the Father speaking to Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. By the way, how long is this throne? For eternity. The Son's throne. Not just the Father's throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's eternal. And you, Lord, in, now jumping down to verse 10, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will become old like a garment, because he's the first, but guess what? He's also the last. They'll become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's why he's the first, and he's the last, because when creation, the dissolution of creation takes place, He's still there, amen? He's sovereign over everything, man. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then in verse 14, a few verses later in the Gospel of John chapter one, and the word tabernacled or among us. The word became flesh, amen? The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. Heavy, man. Now, well, are you sure the book of Revelation is talking about Jesus when it says he's the first and last? No doubt about it. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Let's start at the beginning of the book. Revelation chapter 1. And by the way, if you're sharing with a Jehovah's Witness, show them that Revelation chapter, or Isaiah chapter 40, 44, verse 6, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and last beside me, there is no God is the one who calls himself Yahweh. It's Yahweh there. In their Bible, say Jehovah. And they go to verse 24 and show them where it says he created everything by himself. Yahweh created everything by himself. So then say, who would, if I told you I was the first and last, who would I be claiming to be? They'd say, well, you'd be saying you're God, the creator of all things. Yeah, you're right. Oh, I don't say that though, <laughs> you know. But I know who is the first and last. And then when you go to Revelation chapter 1, and then we have in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Who's coming with the clouds? Jesus, amen? 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It's definitely talking about Jesus there, amen? And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. Then look at verse 8. I am the what? Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, people will debate that verse. I personally believe that it could refer to the Father, it could refer to the Son, and bottom line, it refers to both of them because they're both the Alpha and the Omega. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and last. Beside me there is no God. And it's interesting here, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the proximity of the verses right after verse 7 where the subject is Jesus, is coming, amen? But in the terminology here is use of the Father and the Son. In Revelation 1-4, he was and is and is to come is used of the Father in juxtaposition to Jesus when you look at the context. However, when you go to Revelation other places like Revelation eleven fifteen, and Jesus comes back at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet sounds, says the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of Christ, right? And then it says, it speaks of Christ beginning his reign. And it says, he who was, in verses 15 through 19 of Revelation 11, he was and is, no longer is to come because what happened? He just came right there, okay? His second coming is pictured right there. So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega is another wonderful way of, you know, of saying first and last. It's using the whole, you know, the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And he is also almighty. How do I know he's almighty? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all power in heaven and earth, all power in heaven and earth are given unto me. Some might say, well, they're given to him. That doesn't mean he had it before, but that was after the resurrection. Well, can anybody here say all power in heaven and earth he's given to me? No. But before, the, before he came to earth, he was the word, he was with God, and he was God. He created everything. We've already established that, amen? And how do we know all power in heaven and earth was his before he became a man? Very easily, John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you in the beginning. So he's restored to his except now he's subjugated to an earthly body. Not that, not that he's localed only, localized in that body alone. He's also omnipresent, amen? But he also now has a, a body because he partook of the body of a man to save us, amen? To die on the cross for our sins. So Jesus is almighty, amen? All power in heaven and earth belong to him. They belonged to him before he became a man. He created the heavens and the earth. We just read that over and over again. So, but if the Jehovah Witness is like, well, I refuse to believe that, that he's the first and last, you know, that he's the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, it gets much richer, you guys. It gets much more obvious because in verse 11, you know, 9, John says, I'm a fellow uh, suffering tribulation with the other brethren and so forth. And then he begins, he has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven uh, candlesticks or the seven lampstands with seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And his face shines like the sun during noon, the noon of day. Just, just, can you imagine? Just before you, you're like, you know, and it's just like the sun is shining, but it's his face. And what does John do? Do you remember? He falls down on the ground, loses his strength, falls down on the ground, just terrified. Because, so don't think Jesus looks like this, you know, I mean, he's a man, 
but he's also God still, amen? He's letting John see a little glimpse of his glory, enough glory to where he sees who he is, but he doesn't disintegrate in his presence. So what happens? What happens? Go ahead and look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid. I am who? I am the first and the last. Amen? I am the first and the last. Well, how do you know it's Jesus, though, he's looking at? Well, look at the next verse. And the living one, and I was what? I was dead. And behold, I am what? Alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Did the Father die for our sins? No. Did the Father rise again after dying and have, have the keys of death and Hades? No. That's definitely Jesus there. Okay, so he's obviously the first and the last. The first and last letter of the Greek alphabet as well, the alpha and the omega. In fact, look at chapter one, or chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden abstands says this, it's Jesus addressing the seven churches, right? Then look at chapter two, verse eight. He addresses not Ephesus, we just looked at Ephesus, the first verse. Look at verse eight, now he's addressing the church of Smyrna. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the what? the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. Is that speaking of the Father or of Jesus? Speaking of Jesus. Who's the first and last? Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and last. Beside me there's no God. He is God, guys. It's so obvious. It's so clear. In, in fact, he's the first. In fact, Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It says he's without. It says in Micah 5.2, that he is from everlasting. In Hebrews chapter 13, 8, it says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? It says in the book of Hebrews that he is without beginning of days. Okay? Jesus has an eternal throne. I've just shown that to you as well. So he's with the Father from eternity past. Now, and also he brings, as I mentioned, the dissolution of all things. Hebrews chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, says that he'll come like a thief in the night, right? On the day of the Lord, at the end of that day of the Lord, which could comprise the thousand years a day, days a thousand years, it says there the entire millennial period. It says everything will melt with fervent heat, right? And that comes because of Jesus coming. He creates everything, and then he just melts everything down and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, as we continue to look at this, it gets to me a lot heavier. Uh, go to Revelation chapter 22. And this makes it so clear, what you're about to see. I mean, I think, isn't it already clear? And I was like, I'm not going to spend a whole service on this because it's just so clear, you know. And you have to be a biased Jehovah's witness or a cultist to deny that Jesus is the first and last and that the first and last is God. And in Revelation 22, 7, Remember, in Revelation 1, 7, it says, Behold, he comes with what? Clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also which pierce him, and all kids of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. And then 1, 8, he says, I am the, first, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and last, right? Uh, the Almighty God, right? So whoever the first and last is, right? And I don't have a hard time if the JW or someone's saying, no, well, he, I, I, that's talking about the Father in verse 8. He's the first and last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Only he's that. No, that's good. You can argue that way because it's a possibility. Because as long as you emphasize that 
that's God there, that's fine, because guess what? Throughout Revelation, it's Jesus is God, he's the same. That's why it says it applies to both, actually. These, these terms, titles, apply to the Father and the Son. And in Revelation 22, 7, last book, chapter of the Bible, and behold, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. He's the one who's coming. But now look at verses 22, 12, and 6, 13. Top down to 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am what? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Amen? The same titles we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 of the Almighty God. Are you with me? Well, you're sure this is talking about Jesus? Well, look at the next verse right after that, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates of the city outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I who? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. For the churches, I am the root and the, uh, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Amen? Amen. I love it, man. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. He who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Are you sure he's the one who's coming? Then what does John say? Amen. Come who? Lord Jesus. Okay? It's an unmitigated, irrefutable fact that the one who is addressing them as the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, beginning and the end, is the one who's coming, who's identified as being the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus is God. And that's why when you look at why groups that are considered cultic, you know, whether it's, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormonism, you know, and so forth, uh, they deny. We're talking about orthodox doctrine. You cannot deny that Jesus Christ is God or make him less than God. Like Jehovah, Mormons say, oh, we believe he's God. We believe he's even Yahweh the Old Testament. Yeah, but you believe that he was a spirit brother of Lucifer and he was birthed and then he took a body and he's become a God, you know. Not that he's eternal God from everlasting to everlasting. And you have to believe that he's the first and last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the ending. Amen. Amen. That he's almighty God. And you have to believe as Isaiah 43.10 says, right before chapter 44 verse 6, thus, what does it say? You're my witnesses, saith the Lord. That's where Jehovah's Witnesses get their name. You're my witnesses, says Jehovah in the, in the New World Abomination. I'm sorry, the New World Translation, their translation. It says, you're my witnesses, saith the, the Lord in the NSB, my servants, uh, that you may know and believe me that I am he. Before me there was what? No God formed, neither shall there be after me. That destroys Mormonism right there because they believe in a progression of gods and that the God who created this universe is only one of many gods and there's many gods before him. And they just keep doing this. And we become gods and we create our own universes and so forth. If we get to the celestial kingdom and can have our own, we do the same thing he did. That kind of diminishes who God is, doesn't it? Makes him like a man that's just, you know, evolved, which is not the biblical God. That's why Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are considered cults because they deny who Jesus Christ really is. Because the Bible warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 not to believe in a different Jesus, not to receive a different spirit, not to receive a different gospel. 
And they teach gospels, the gospel, gospel of works, ultimately. To get to the celestial kingdom, you have to tithe for a year straight to get to the celestial kingdom. JWs, man, you got to knock on a bunch of doors. And we street witness, we believe in sharing the gospel, but you have to do that. And you have to endure it actually through the whole thousand-year millennial period doing good works to merit your way into heaven. Whew, wow. So Jesus is often the omega in so many ways, though, too. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 11, the author and finisher of faith. Uh, by the way, even the book of Revelation, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Look at the very last verse. That's the, out, that's the first beginning of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the very last, last verse, very small verse in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. The grace of the what? Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I love God. I love how he just does that. And I'm going to put Jesus at the very beginning of Revelation, the very end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Beginning and the ending, first and last. Amen? Amen. He's amazing. So we have this amazing, amazing God. Now, let's go back to Revelation chapter 21. Is that sufficient or you need more proof or we're good? <laughs> Praise God. Revelation chapter 21. I'm not going to pass up such a beautiful verse though as, as uh, that first part. And then... Uh, Verse 6, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will, now, how do we know this is Jesus speaking here? Well, look at the next part of the verse. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Who's the one who offers living water over and over again? Jesus, amen? Okay, and we see that in the Gospel of John chapter 4, Gospel of John chapter 7. In fact, Man, I'm looking at that clock, and I'm like, oh, that's right. We start at 9.30 now. I'm like, I'm in trouble. How could I already be late? So we're good for a little while. So go, please, to John chapter 4, Gospel of John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 is just amazing, you know, uh, because there's a lot of heavy stuff going on in the Gospel of John. But when I see he's going to give the, uh, us to drink of the river of living water without cost. Amen? Without cost. Free. And in John chapter 4, you see him offering this living water to an unexpected person that nobody would expect him to offer it to. In fact, people would look like, how could he even be talking to this woman in public, you know? Because she had a bad reputation. And not only that, even if she was a, considered a righteous woman in her own culture, the Jews would think of her as being filthy. So you have John chapter 4, pick it up at verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Okay? So he goes into Galilee and we read uh, in verse 5, so, or in verse uh, 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria? He didn't have to pass through Samaria in the way you might think. Because he could have went over through, across the Jordan River because the Jews did not like to go through Samaria. Because the Samaritans were half-breeds mixed in with a lot of Gentile blood, had embraced a lot of paganism. Remember the Civil War? Remember at the end of Solomon's reign and then his son and then so forth who, who took over his reign and so forth that he raised the taxes and everything so high it split the kingdom and those northern tribes 
tried to have a temple built because they didn't want to go to, the, to Jerusalem in the south to worship at that temple because they said, hey, we're, God, we're, God's, we're going to just follow God in our own way. And they began to erect you know, a pagan temple. And they would mix Yahweh. And just as the Jews who came down, when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, they built this, this golden calf. They called it Yah, you know. And so you're going to name it God and everything's going to be all right. That's what a lot of people try to do to make themselves feel good. They try to take some of the truth and mix it with a lie. And what happened is you had pagan worship by Gentiles mixed with Jews in the northern kingdom. In fact, when you go on an Israel trip, you see the remnants of that worship. It's, it's mind-boggling how they try to emulate or copy a lot of what was going on in Jerusalem at the temple. And so the Samaritans were considered sellouts, compromisers, unclean, uh, a lot of Gentile blood and so forth. And you would try to go around Samaria. But it says he had to pass through Samaria. He, how did he have to? It's the word of God. He had to. Well, in what way did he have to? Because he has to talk to this woman. He wants to talk to this woman in Samaria, a Samaritan woman. And John incorporates this in his gospel. You don't find it in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, you find it in John for a very, very important reason. Uh, and you see a lot in John where the Lord wants us to understand that he, he, he wants everyone to make it. He loves everyone. And in John chapter 4, uh, verse 6, uh, go ahead and continue to read uh, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of the ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there because Jacob dug a deep well and found water. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. There came a woman of, the, of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, this is really all quite interesting because according to the Jews, one of the Jewish prayers, no kidding, because it went to their heads that God had chosen Abraham Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, that they thought it was all about them, that they were special because of the, the people group, their racial structure or what have you. Because you were an Israelite man, you were just automatically right with God and so forth. And they missed the very fact that early in Genesis chapter 12 and elsewhere, that God says he chose Abraham, that through Abraham all the what would be blessed. All the nations would be blessed. And that the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, amen. And the Messiah would come through Abraham's descendants and that everybody could be saved, whoever would come to him. And they began to think that they were the end all. And it went to their heads. And he said, when I give you wealth, don't let it go to your heads. You know, I'm paraphrasing. He says, when you give wealth, don't misuse it. And all these different blessings. And they wrote off everybody pretty much. They didn't become elected Gentiles. Now, they did to a degree. Because all the first apostles, right? And the whole early church, right? Was what? Jewish believers bringing light to the Gentiles. But it was a remnant. Now, it's interesting because they had a prayer then they would say, Lord, you know, the rabbis would pray, Lord, I want to thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, that you did not make me a dog, and that you did not make me a woman. That's what they would pray. These men were pretty chauvinistic, okay? They didn't recognize that they missed Genesis chapter 1. In the image of God created he them, right? We're all created in the image of God, male and female. And so she had two strikes against her, right? She was a Gentile or mixed to Gentile blood, and she was a woman. But guess what? She really had three strikes against her, okay? She really had three strikes against her. In fact, you know why? Because she was a Samaritan woman. 
they were especially scorned by the Jews. In fact, Nidah 4.1, which is a Mishnah in the Jewish Talmud, the Jews have the Talmud that they go by, which is like a lot of the oral law put down. Kind of like what, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because you teach the doctors of men as the commandments of God and you nullify the word of God by your traditions. Well, their traditions, a lot of them were carried through through the years. And listen to what it says in the Jewish Talmud. The daughters of Samaria are as dirty as menstruating women from the cradle. Okay, that's how they looked at Gentile, at Samaritan women. There was three strikes, man. But is that how God looked at them? No, he loved them, man. And we're all unclean, amen. We all need grace. And the Jews needed grace just as the Gentiles needed grace. Now look at verse 8. Pick it up at verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, huh, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given her living water. Now for the Jews, living water was quite different than stagnant water. Stagnant water was water that was just still for a period of time. Living water was running water, fresh water, okay, in a stream, a river, and what have you. And he said, I would have given you living water. Wow. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then can you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? <laughs> you gave us, who gave us this well and drank it of, of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Okay, and that's true of life. People will constantly thirst. You, the things of this world will never satisfy you. Okay, because you're more than a body. Your body, soul, and spirit, amen. And the spiritual side of you is by far the most important side of you. Because Jesus says, don't fear man who can kill your body, but can't kill the soul. Fear God who can destroy body and soul in hell, amen. And the world's blind. Everything's inverted, you know. Because we're spirit, you know, soul and body. In the world, it's inverted. Body comes first, right? Spirit's last, or it's not even on the list, right? But we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, amen? The total opposite of, in psychology, where they have Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's a, a pyramid, and the, the you know, most important thing is your physical needs first. Well, Jesus flips that. He says, no, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be what? added to you, okay? And the world's got it all backwards. We need to seek first the Lord and his kingdom. And so he says, you'll thirst again because she'll never have that spiritual longing and that ache that in her, is in her heart, that, that state of, of guilt and unforgiveness that she has going at that time will never be, uh, she'll never be forgiven if she doesn't come to the Lord, doesn't find the Messiah, doesn't know who the Messiah is or God, God's plan. But verse 8 says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall what? Never thirst. 4.14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to what? Eternal life. Isn't that interesting? The water comes from him. He's the source of the water. And then he wants to make us and her wells. What are wells for? forgetting water. Did you know you are not the end of all, end all, and I'm not the end of all? We're not meant to just be filled 
we're meant to be wells where other people can get water. Do you follow that? In fact, he's going to use this woman from this day onward. Pretty heavy. Let's look, check it out. For the woman said to him, sir, give me this, this, this water so I will not be thirsty for, uh, nor come all this way here to draw. She misunderstands him to a degree, obviously. By the way, that well was deep and it was connected to underground ca caverns of water where other wells in the area could fill up, the cisterns could fill up, and the cistern or well would dry up, and then you'd have to find water elsewhere. This water, this had an ongoing source of water, so it's a great picture of ultimately of who Jesus is, Jacob's well here. But she had to keep drawing from that, keep going out there, arduous work. And by the way, she's there, right, at noon. That's not when you come out. You don't go to get water at a well in, at noontime. And notice this doesn't seem like there's anybody else there. That's because she is a woman of ill repute, okay? And she is rejected by people in her culture, uh, apparently. In verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one with whom you now have, the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Okay, she's probably getting really blown away, right? What's the point here? The Bible is very clearly, do not misunderstand the beauty of what's being said here. It's so heavy. She is there at noon, super hot time of the day. She's been divorced five times, okay? It's very unlikely that they just all died. And if they just all just died, then she's even worse, okay? because they probably didn't die of old age because she's going out there to the well at noon. She's been divorced probably five times. And she's shacking up with a guy and living with him and not even married. Okay? So she's a woman of ill repute. And she's trying to be satisfied by men. And they never seem to satisfy her. And there's something else going on really heavy right here. And the reason I believe we see this in John chapter 4 is because we just saw something totally different in John 3, which we didn't have time to study because we're in Revelation 21.6, right? But in John chapter 3, you have this very interesting thing going on where the Lord is showing that even the most devout religious Pharisee, that the teacher of Israel is not welcome to come to God on his own righteousness. Amen? Amen. He can't get into heaven in his own righteousness. That no one, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, it says, right? So the most devout people that think that they're going to get in because they're just so righteous, whoo, no way. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Do you know that? Well, then, if, and, the, and we're told the Jews believed back in those days if only two people entered heaven. One would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. Jesus takes that teaching and says, unless your righteousness exceeds those two, the, the righteousness, you won't, you won't enter. Because you can't get in on your own righteousness, amen? That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, now, was he doomed? Yeah, if he trusted in those righteousness. That's why Jesus, you don't want to miss this. That's why Jesus says, you must be born again to Nicodemus, amen? amen. And that's why Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes should not perish but everlasting life. But guess what? John chapter 4 is juxtaposed to that. Why? Because in John chapter 4, it's not the most devout person can't make it in. It's the most wicked of people can make it in. By the grace of God, amen. amen. And I believe that's why the Holy Spirit had John put John chapter 4 right after John chapter 3. 
And while you don't see John 4, uh, the Samaritan story in the Synoptic Gospels, the Lord is letting us know, and John was written later than the Synoptics, John is led by the Holy Spirit to incorporate this story in to let people know that God wants all to be saved. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, right? It says these things are, he wrote these things, why? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that he's a Christ, the son of God, that we might have life in his name, amen? So it's an evangelistic gospel account. It's also to teach us most definitely, but there's a lot going on here that's very, very important to understand. So she's not finding satisfaction. You cannot find satisfaction through a spouse, okay? You cannot find satisfaction through anything this world has to offer. I mean, do you see what's going on right now? The world's going crazy, right? See the smash and grab thing that's going on? Where big gangs and groups of people are going to like stores and they're breaking all the glass and stealing all the stuff. We have 100 people or more, it looks like, a ton of people. They're calling each other up. They get together and they just destroy and steal everything. In fact, a security guard that was standing by trying to protect bystanders was just killed in one of these that just took place. And you know what? I noticed that the people run into their cars and when they run into their cars and everything, I noticed something terrible that's going on is that these guys are all dressed nice when they're running out. They're, they're jumping in these nice looking cars and stuff. They all have plenty, but they're just not satisfied. They'll kill people sometimes or they'll break the law. They'll hurt people. Because they want more and more. You know, it's, it's parasitical. And the Bible warns about living for pleasure. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. They're fleeting. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 6, it speaks of those who live for pleasure are spiritually dead while they're alive. See, they're spiritually dead and they can't get satisfied. Because there's that vacuum, that spiritual vacuum that can't get filled by things. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the last days terrible times will come, Right? It says people will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That's the days that we live in, okay? And pleasures will not satisfy you. Even if you have a spouse, that spouse will not satisfy your spiritual needs. They were never meant to. Only God, will, God can. That's why people get divorced left and right because they don't understand that marriage was never meant to satisfy you spiritually. Only the Lord can satisfy you spiritually. And that's the, most, the deepest satisfaction you could possibly have is a relationship with God. Okay, uh, you know, there was a man and his wife and they were celebrating their 40th anniversary and they got married when they were both 25 years old. So they were 65 years old and they were at, they didn't have a lot of money, they're at a park and they're just like, let's have a picnic. And all of a sudden she finds this, this vase and she just jokingly like, oh, what? maybe a genie will come out. And a genie did come out. And a genie comes out and says, whatever you want. You get, both get one wish. She said, I wish we were on a beautiful island that was just had everything to offer and for the rest of our lives, poof, there they were. And she's looking at him, he's looking at her. Wow, both 65. And the genie goes, what do you want? He goes, I want a woman that's 30 years younger than me. Poof, he was 95 years old, you know? <laughs> So every time we kind of leave God out of our plans and we seek the genies or the jinns, magic or the things of this world, we always get ripped off, man. We need to seek the Lord, amen, and seek his ways and not live for pleasure. It's very, very critical that we understand that because our joy, joy is not found in things. Jesus says that your, your happiness, basically, your lives don't consist in the things that you possess. 
The Bible says those who try to seek to get wealth, to be satisfied with wealth, shall never be satisfied with wealth. In fact, the scriptures are really clear in that regard. In fact, uh, some of the scriptures that I like is, you know, uh, the scriptures that talk about how death, just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. Just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. If you physically and humanly desire things, you're never going to be satisfied. You're just going to want more and more. You have to find your rest in Jesus. Amen? You have to find your rest in him. In fact, that's why Paul can write in Philippians when he's imprisoned with guards, you know, <laughs> chained to him, writing one of his prison epistles. He writes about joy in that epistle more than any other letter by far. And that's why he could write rejoice in verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Rejoice in who? In the Lord. When you have a, I can say by the grace of God, I have joy because of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I've been a Christian for years and years. I knew what it was to chase joy, chase happiness and never find it. As, as a teenager, getting drunk all the time, getting stoned and everything else and pleasure and sin for a season, but it was fleeting and never satisfied, always wandering, you know. And then when I came to Christ, man, by the grace of God, I don't seek peace anywhere else and never have had to because I drink from the living water and he satisfies, amen? In fact, Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So we're supposed to always rejoice in him. You say, well, how could I rejoice? I don't No, it says rejoice in him. You have to rejoice in him. You have to realize who he is, that he is the lover of your soul, that he made you, he gave you your own fingerprint. He made you in his image. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, that he cares about you. He wants to use you to his glory. He has purpose for you, amen. He has plan for you, amen. He wants to glorify you uh, through the resurrection. He works all things together for the good for those who love him, that are called according to his purpose, amen. And these present sufferings can't be compared to the glory that he's gonna reveal in you. So you look at the, good pl the, the big plan of God, you look at how big he is, how good is and you realize wow he loves me man he gave himself for me he's coming back for me he intercedes for me he's preparing a place for me eye has not seen ear has not heard right what the lord's prepared for those who love him so it's imperative that we recognize and then what paul says a little bit later in philippians a few verses later after he says rejoice in the lord because it's not about get the world is constantly like man we're gonna do a smash and grab man we're grabbing then we're gonna be happy then we and they're oh god when's the next smash and grab because they're, they're depressed now they got a guilty conscience because they're stealing from people, which is wicked and evil. And guess what, man? They can't get joy because they don't have him. Happiness is not found in it or things or possessions. It's found in a relationship with the Lord. Amen? Amen. So that's why Paul says a few verses later, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. See, I learned how to be abased and how to abound. Well, what's the secret, he says in verse 13? For I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? It's a relationship with Christ. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Amen? So it's critical. It's to have that joy, you want to, you want to make sure you've repented. That you've embraced Jesus. That you're drinking from the living water. Not just knowing about the Lord. That you're relating to him. That you're praying. You're seeking him. That you're obeying him. Amen? How do, you, how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? You come to Jesus who gives the living water. You obey him. In fact, this is what Jesus said in John 15, 10, 11. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy. You remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? 
full or complete. He wants your joy to be full and complete. You can't be a disobedience to God and rebellion to him and have fullness of joy. It's just not, God didn't make it that way because he made you to only have joy in him because he is the one, the source of true joy, okay? So it's really critical that we understand this and how, how important this is as well. And by the way, this is what Jeremiah chapter 12, chapter, so the fullness of joy comes from being, drinking from the fountain of living water, amen? Who's the fountain of living water? Jesus. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, for my people have committed two evils, two evils. They have forsaken me, that's the first evil, they've forsaken me, they've forsaken me the fountain of living waters. God says he's the fountain of living waters, Yahweh. That's why Jesus is Yahweh again, Amen. And they've, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, you have hewn for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They drink from wells in the world that cannot hold water. They can't hold the living water. They cannot sustain them. In chapter 17, verse 13, it says, O Lord, O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Yahweh. You don't want to forsake him, man. Now, look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Just a couple verses there. Verse 37. John 7, verse 37. Now, on the last day, and when it's talking about the last day, it's talking about the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Now, keep in mind, understand what the Feast of Tabernacles is. Quickly. The Feast of Tabernacles uh, is one of the seven feasts of Israel. Now, the Gospel of John, John really focuses on, on, the, on the feast days. He likes to focus. In fact, he focuses repeatedly on the Passover. Why? Because Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ was crucified on Passover for our sins. Amen. He's the Passover lamb. But he also focuses on what happened with Jesus on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast where they would come every year, and they would pitch tents. They would all travel to Jerusalem, who didn't live there. And they would pitch tents and live there in tents for a week. Why? Because they're commemorating what God did when they went through the wilderness. Remember that? When they went through the wilderness, what, what do they live in? Tents, amen? So remembering when they lived in tents, amen? So on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, what would they do? They would pour out water, okay, taken from the, uh, the pool of Siloam. And they pour out that water and pour it on the altar. Why? Because they were commemorating what happened in Rephidim in the wilderness. When you had about 600,000 Jews. Males. And then all the wives and the kids. So you're talking well over a million people now. Dying of thirst. And what does God tell Moses to do in Rephidim? Tells him to hit a specific rock with a staff, his wooden staff, hit that rock and out would flow what? Water, living water. Amen. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people lapping up water, drinking and drinking and drinking. And afterwards, he said, don't hit the rock again. Just speak to the rock and water will come forth. So they were commemorating that, right? Well, who did that rock signify? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the apostle Paul said specifically, that that rock was a picture of Jesus. He says, and all drank the same spiritual rock, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, all drank the same spiritual rock, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, it's really heavy when you think about that. 
Who did the rock signify? Christ. What did the wood staff signify? Well, think about it. The cross. Bam! The rocks, cross strikes the rock. Picture of Christ's death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it says water came out of his side and blood. Blood to cleanse us. Water is a picture of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. We're cleansed by the blood, but Christianity is more than being forgiven. It's about being empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve God. Amen? Oh, and what did the water signify? The Holy Spirit. Amen? Because Jesus gives us his spirit. In fact, look at what happens on the last day when they're pouring out that water. Jesus it says now on the last day, verse 37, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow what? Rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke of what? The spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not given. Jesus was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So by coming to him, they would receive forgiveness. Then on the day of Pentecost, they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And guess what? We are to come to Jesus. We are to be filled with his Holy Spirit. How do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Look at this. Can, I, I think this is very, very important. Verse, the middle of verse 37. If who? If who? Anyone, man, including a Samaritan woman. Are you with me today? It doesn't matter what your background is. Paul said, God saved me, the chief of sinners, to show others in the future who would believe on him that they too could be saved. Amen? He offers his Holy Spirit to anyone that will come to him. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast away. It doesn't matter who you are and what you've done in the past. If you come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you away. Amen? He loves you. He wants you. It doesn't matter. You could have a, a, be a prostitute in the past and then you repent and you believe in Jesus. How, how does that happen? If you believe in him, put your trust in him, amen? Repent and put your trust in him. Also, pray. If you're a Christian, you say, I've come to Jesus. Praise God, I've, I'm, I'm born again. I want to be filled with his Holy Spirit. I want to be a well. Well, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And I personally believe that everyone that believes in Jesus and is trusting in him has been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. If you have not the Spirit, it says you're none of his, okay? And some teach, you know, a second greater work of baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. I believe we get all the Holy Spirit in when we get saved, when Jesus comes to, to live in us. But the Holy Spirit doesn't have all of us typically. That's why, but, but the moment we get saved and we're justified, sanctification starts. And we all have the Holy Spirit. He has us to one degree or another. But he wants us fully, amen? So how does that happen? Well, in John chapter 7, right here, I think it's very, very interesting, the tenses that John uses here, uses here, and when he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's literally, in the Greek, it's, it's literally keep on believing, keep coming to him. We're supposed to keep coming to him. Just like Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, they're both, in John 7, you have a present tense imperative, okay? You have this present tense imperative where we're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, literally it can be written this way. Let anyone who is thirsty keep coming to me and keep drinking. Because they're both present tense imperatives. Just like Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Another present tense imperative. Listen to this. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So guess what? As Walt, Dr. Walter Martin used to say, that Christians are like leaky buckets, Amen. So you need to constantly drink. How do you drink? You continue in prayer. 
This is key. This is key. How many of you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Okay. How many want to be a walking well? Because that woman, if we kept reading her story in John chapter 4, she goes and tells all these people about Jesus. And that was just because of the unction of the Holy Spirit speaking to her. She wasn't even filled with the Holy Spirit yet. That was the Holy Spirit working on her and in her heart. But she wouldn't be filled until Pentecost. And he's already using her. And others are coming. So they say, we're, we're hearing you, but we want to go see for ourselves. Coming to Jesus. And many believe because of her testimony. Because she's already communicating his message. How much more us on this side of Pentecost, who have the Holy Spirit, are we to be living wells? You are supposed, Jesus is the living water, amen? But we're wells by which we communicate that water to the non-believing world. They should be able to see Jesus in us. They should see that we're different. Just like he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When someone's drunk with wine, that drunkenness influences them. You could have a really quiet, introverted person get drunk, and all of a sudden they're a loud, boisterous person. It influences them. Well, how much more should the Holy Spirit influence those of us who are believers in a good way with the fruit of the Spirit? Love and peace and joy and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, amen? So we get filled with the Holy Spirit and then we're influenced to become more and more like the Lord, amen? People begin to see Jesus in us. It's like that, but it says be filled with the Holy Spirit. That word is a use of a sail being filled with air, being filled with wind. And we're like sailboats, man. And if we don't crowd to the Lord and seek to be used by him and pray to our Father and abide in his word, our sail's down, man. But as soon as you get into his word, as soon as you're praying and seeking the Father, amen, then your sail goes up and the wind fills that sail, amen. And then you're able to get across that water. You're able to be a witness and a bright light. You know, we're like, we're like dark rooms without a candle without Jesus, amen. Without him filling us, we allow him to fill us and the light gets bright. You ever go, you see a hot air balloons? Sometimes you see them on the ground. A lot of us are like grounded hot air balloons because we don't have any of that gas in us. We have, we're just there. We're believers and there's a little bit, we all have the Holy Spirit in us, but we don't allow him to influence us as we ought. Uh, there's not two kinds of Christians. You're either a Christian that's following Jesus or you're not a Christian, amen? So I'm not teaching that, but I do, I do believe the very, scripture is very clear. When he commands to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that shows me that people aren't always filled with the Holy Spirit, amen? So we need to obey that command. So how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? You put your trust in Jesus. And then after he says, don't be drunk with wine, but fill the Holy Spirit, keep being filled, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. Well, what's going on there? What does it mean? How, do you, how does that relate to being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because if you look at the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, Colossians and Ephesians sometimes are called twin epistles. They're very similar if you read them. It's like, wow, the old man, the new man, all that. They're different too. But right when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual song, songs. You know what? It doesn't say be filled with the Holy Spirit in Colossians. You know what it says instead? Let the word of Christ fill you. That's the key. You let God's word fill you. Amen. You humbly surrender to his word and allow it to fill you. Amen. And you trust him and his word and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you dream or imagine by the power that works in you. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. And a few verses before that, he says, I pray to the Father, right, that we'd understand the height, and the depth, and the width of God's love for us, and that we would what? Be filled with the fullness of God's Spirit. I don't go to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, fill me. I go to the Father. Can we really pray to have more of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. That's what Paul's doing there in Ephesians chapter 3. In, in, in John or Luke chapter 11, Jesus, is at, Jesus says, who of you being evil when your kid asks you for a, a, a bread or an egg gives him a snake or a scorpion? He says, even so, the father who is much better, he says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Who ask him? Amen. 
I'm telling you right now, this is the key to victorious living. Lord wants us to be spirit-filled Christians, amen? Holy Spirit-filled Christians. He doesn't want you to say, oh, I'm forgiven. Praise the Lord. We'll wait for Jesus to come back. No, he wants you to be excited about Jesus coming, but he wants you to be drinking daily from the well of living water. Amen? Going to Jesus constantly, going to the Father, saying, Lord, fill me with your love. Fill me with your goodness. Fill me with your word. He wants you to be a person of the word. I notice that brothers and sisters that are in the word, that are reading the word of God, they're just so excited about the word of God. They're so excited about the Lord. The more people are in the word, the more they love God and they have, they're in the word with a good attitude, meaning God, you're God, I'm not. How do I obey you? They're the most excited Christians. The ones who don't read the word and stuff, they're going through the most problems I noticed through the years. It's just the way it typically is. Oh, you'll go through some problems still, but you won't be under the circumstances. You'll be that, like that balloon filled with the Holy Spirit above the circumstances. Satan won't be able to get you down ultimately. Oh, you'll have some hard times, but you'll arise victoriously, amen? So let's make sure that we drink from the living water. Revelation chapter 21, 5 and 6. Man, time goes so quick. I'm, I'm early if we're with our old time. I'm late with our new time, so I'm late. Let's stand up and pass out the cup and the bread. We have an awesome God though, amen? And as they're passing out the uh, bread, I want one last scripture for you. Listen to this. If, you, if you're standing up and you still have your phone or your Bible out, look at the last, set, a few last verse of chapter 22. What does it say? What does it say? Verse 17. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the what? Bride, that's the church, us. Say what? Come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Amen? The water...